0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Temple Trouble by H. Beam Piper. Part Two. By noon of the next day, Verkan Vall had at least a hundred men gathered in the big room at the first-level fishenables refinery at Jernabar, spatially coexistent with the fourth-level temple of Yatzar at Zerb. He was having a little trouble distinguishing between them, for every man wore the fringed blue robe and gold mitre of an upper priest and had his face masked behind a blue false beard. It was, he admitted to himself, a most ludicrous-looking assemblage. One of the most ludicrous things about it was the fact that it would have inspired only pious awe in a hulgan of the fourth-level Proto-Aryan sector. About half of them were priests from the transtemporal mining corporation's temples, the other half were members of the Paratime Police. All of them wore, in addition to their temple knives, holstered sigma-ray needlers. Most of them carried ultrasonic paralyzers, 18-inch baton-like things with bulbous ends. Most of the Paratime police, and a few of the priests, also carried either heat-ray pistols or neutron disruption blasters. Verk and Vol wore one of the latter in a left-hand belt holster. The Paratime police were lined up separately for inspection. And Stranor Sleth, Tamandrav of the Zurb Temple, and several other high priests were checking the authenticity of their disguises. A little apart from the others, a paratime policeman in high priest's robes and beard had a square box slung in front of him. He was fiddling with the knobs and buttons on it, practising. A big idol of Yat Zar on antigravity was floating slowly about the room in obedience to its remote controls. Rising and lowering, turning about and pirouetting gracefully. Hey, Val, he called to his superior. How's this? The idol rose about five feet, turned slowly in a half circle, moved to the right a little, and then settled down slowly toward the floor. Fine, fine, Horv, Verkan Vall told him, but don't set it down on anything or turn off the antigravity. There's enough collapsed nickel-plating on that thing to sink it a yard in soft ground." "'I don't know what the idea of that was,' Branad Clav, standing beside him, said. "'Understand, I'm not criticizing—I haven't any right to, under the circumstances—but it seems to me that armoring that thing in collapsed nickel was an unnecessary precaution.' "'Maybe it was,' Verkan Vall agreed. "'I sincerely hope so. But we can't take any chances this operation has to be absolutely right. Ready, Tammond? All right. First detail into the conveyor." He turned and strode toward a big dome of fine metallic mesh, thirty feet high and sixty in diameter, at the other end of the room. Tammond Drav and his ten Paratimer priests and Branad Klav and ten Paratime police followed him in. One of the latter slid shut the door and locked it. Verkan Vall went to the control desk, at the center of the dome, and picked up a two-foot globe of the same fine metallic mesh, opened it, and, making some adjustments inside, then attaching an electric cord and closing it. He laid the globe on the floor near the desk and picked up the hand-battery at the other end of the attached cord. Not taking any chances at all, are you? Brennan Klav asked, watching the operation with interest. I never do, unnecessarily. There are too many necessary chances that have to be taken in this work. Verkan Vall pressed the button on the hand-battery. The globe on the floor flashed and vanished. Yesterday, five paratimers were arrested. Any or all of them could have had door activators with them. Stranor Sleth says that they were not tortured, but that is a purely inferential statement. They may have been, and the use of the activator may have been extorted from one of them. So I want to look at the inside of that conveyor chamber before we transpose into it. He laid the hand-battery, with the loose dangling wire that had been left behind, on the desk, then lit a cigarette. The others gathered around, smoking and watching, careful to avoid the place from which the globe had vanished. Thirty minutes passed, and then, in a queer iridescence, the globe reappeared. Verkan Vall counted ten seconds and picked it up, taking it to the desk and opening it to remove a small square box. Then he slid into a space under the desk and flipped a switch. Instantly a viewscreen lit up and a three-dimensional picture appeared the interior of a big room, a hundred feet square and some seventy in height. There was a big desk and a radio, tables, couches, chairs, and an arms-rack full of weapons at one end. A remarkably clean, sixty-foot circle on the concrete floor, outlined in faintly luminous red. "'How about it?' Verkan Vall asked Temendrav. "'Anything wrong?' The Zerb High Priest shook his head just as we left it," he said. Nobody's been inside since we left. One of the policemen took Verkan Vall's place at the control desk, and threw the master-switch after checking the instruments. Immediately the paratemporal transposition field went on with a humming sound that mounted to a high scream, then settled to a steady drone. The mesh dome flickered with a cold iridescence, and vanished. And they were looking into the interior of a great fissionables refinery plant, operated by paratimers on another first level timeline. The structural details altered, from timeline to timeline, as they watched. Buildings appeared and vanished. Once, for a few seconds, they were inside a cool, insulating bubble in the midst of molten lead. Tamandrav jerked a thumb at it before it vanished. That always bothers me, he said bad place for the field to go weak. I'm fussy as an old hen about inspection of the conveyor on account of that." "'Don't blame you,' Verkenvall agreed. "'Probably the cooling system of a breeder-pile.'" They passed more swiftly, now, across the second level and the third. Once they were in the midst of a huge land battle, with great tank-like vehicles spouting flame at one another. Another moment was spent in an air-bombardment. On any timeline, this section of East Europe was a natural battleground. Once, a great procession marched toward them, carrying red banners and huge pictures of a coarse-faced man with a black mustache. Verkan Vall recognized the environment as fourth-level Europo-American sector. Finally, as the transposition rate slowed, they saw a clutter of miserable thatched huts— in the rear of a granite wall of a fourth-level Hulgan temple of yat a temple not yet infiltrated by transtemporal mining corporation agents. Finally, they were at their destination. The dome around them became visible, and an overhead green light flashed slowly on and off. Verkan Vall opened the door and stepped outside, his needler drawn. The house of Yat-Zar was just as he had seen it in the picture photographed by the automatic reconnaissance conveyor. The others crowded outside after him. One of the regular priests pulled off his miter and beard and went to the radio, putting on a headset. Verkan Vall and Tamandrav snapped on the visit-screen, getting a view of the Holy of Holies outside. There were six men there, seated at the upper priest's banquet-table drinking from golden goblets. Five of them wore the black robes with green facings which marked them as priests of Muz-Azin. The sixth was an officer of the Chaldun archers, in gilded mail and helmet. "'Why, those are the sacred vessels of the temple!' Tamandrav cried, scandalized. Then he laughed in self-ridicule. "'I'm beginning to take this stuff seriously myself,' Time I put in for a long vacation. I was actually shocked at the sacrilege. Well, let's overtake the infidels in their sins, Verkan Vall said. Paralyzers will be good enough. He picked up one of the bulb headed weapons and unlocked the door. Tamandrav and another of the priests of the Zurb Temple following, and the others crowding behind. They passed out through the veils and burst into the Holy of Holies. Verkan Vall pointed the bulb of his paralyzer at the six seated men and pressed the button. Other paralyzers came into action, and the whole sextet were knocked senseless. The officer rolled from his chair and fell to the floor in a clatter of armor. Two of the priests slumped forward on the table. The others merely sank back in their chairs, dropping their goblets. Give each one of them another dose to make sure," Verkan Vall directed a couple of his own men. Now, Tammond, any other way into the main temple beside that door? Up those steps, Tammondrav pointed. There's a gallery along the side. We can cover the whole room from there. Take your men and go up there. I'll take a few through the door. There'll be about twenty archers out there— and we don't want any of them loosing any arrows before we can knock them out. Three minutes be time enough?" "'Easily. Make it two,' Temandrav said." He took his priests up the stairway and vanished into the gallery of the temple. Verkan Vall waited until one minute had passed, and then, followed by Branad Klav and a couple of Paratime policemen, he went under the plinth and peered out into the temple. Five or six archers, in steel caps and sleeveless leather jackets sewn with steel rings, were gathered around the altar, cooking something in a pot on the fire. Most of the others, like veteran soldiers, were sprawled on the floor, trying to catch a short nap, except a half-dozen who were crouched in a circle, playing some game with dice, an almost universal military practice. The two minutes were up, he aimed his paralyzer at the men around the altar and squeezed the button, swinging it from one to another, and knocking them down with a bludgeon of inaudible sound. At the same time, Temandrav and his detail were stunning the gamblers. Stepping forward and to one side, Verkan Vall, Branad Klav, and the others took care of the sleepers on the floor. In less than thirty seconds, every Chaldun in the temple was incapacitated. All right, make sure none of them come out of it prematurely," Verkan Vall directed. Get their weapons and be sure nobody has a knife or anything hidden on him. Who has the syringe and the sleep-drug ampules? Somebody had, it developed, who was still on the first level, to come up with the second conveyor-load. Verkan Vall swore. Something like this always happened on any operation involving more than a half-dozen men. Well, some of you stay here, patrol around and use your paralyzers on anybody who even twitches a muscle." Ultrasonics were nice, effective, humane police weapons, but they were unreliable. The same dose that would keep one man out for an hour would paralyze another for more than ten or fifteen minutes. And be sure none of them are playing possum. He went back through the door under the plinth, glancing up at the decorated wooden screen and wondering how much work it would take to move the new Yat-Zar in from the conveyors. The five priests and the archer-captain were still unconscious. One of the policemen was searching them. "'Here's the sort of weapons these priests carry,' he said, holding up a short iron mace with a spiked head. "'Carry them on their belts.' He tossed it on the table and began searching another knocked-out hierophant. "'Like this. Hey, look at this, will you?' He drew his hand from under the left side of the senseless man's robe and held up a sigma-ray needler. Verkan Vall looked at it and nodded grimly. "'Had it in a regular shoulder holster,' the policeman said, handing the weapon across the table. "'What do you think?' "'Find anything else funny on him?' "'Wait a minute.' The policeman pulled open the robe and began stripping the priest of Mazazine. Verkan Vall came around the table to help there was nothing else of a suspicious nature. "'Could have got it from one of the prisoners, but I don't like the familiar way he's wearing that holster,' Vall said. "'Has the conveyor gone back yet?' When the policeman nodded, he continued, "'When it returns, take him to the first level. I hope they bring up the sleep-drug with the next load. When you get him back, take him to Durgabar by straddle-rocket immediately, and make sure he gets back alive.' I want him questioned under narcohypnosis by a regular Paratime Commission psychotechnician, in the presence of Chief Tortha Karf and some responsible commission official. This is going to be hot stuff." Within an hour, the whole force was assembled in the temple. The wooden screen had presented no problem. It slid easily to one side. The big idol floated on anti-gravity in the middle of the temple. Verkan Vall was looking anxiously at his watch. It's about two hours to sunset, he said to Stranor Sleth. But as you pointed out, these Hulgans aren't astronomers, and it's a bit cloudy. I wish Cranard Jirth would call in with something definite. About twenty minutes passed. Then the man at the radio came out into the temple. Okay, he called. The man at Krannar Jirth's called in. Krenar Jirth contacted him with a midget radio he has up his sleeve. He's in the palace courtyard now. They haven't brought out the victims yet, but Kerchuk has just been carried out on his throne to that platform in the front of the Citadel. Big crowd gathering on the inner courtyard. More in the streets outside. Palace gates are wide open. "'That's it,' Verkanval cried. "'Form up! The parade's starting!' Branad, you and Tammond and Stranor and I in front, about ten men with paralyzers a little behind us, then Yat-Zar, about ten feet off the ground, and then the others. Forward, ho! They emerged from the temple and started down the broad roadway toward the palace. There was not much of a crowd at first. Most of Zerb had flocked to the palace earlier the lucky ones in the courtyard and the late-comers outside. Those whom they did meet stared at them in open-mouthed amazement. And then some, remembering their doubts and blasphemies, began howling for forgiveness. Others, a substantial majority, realizing that it would be upon King Kurchuk that the real weight of Yat-Zar's six hands would fall, took to their heels, trying to put as much distance as possible between them and the palace before the blow fell. As the procession approached the palace gates, the crowds grew thicker, made up of those who had been unable to squeeze themselves inside. The panic was worse here, too. A good many were trampled and hurt in the rush to escape, and it became necessary to use paralyzers to clear away. That made it worse. Everybody was sure that Yat-Zar was striking sinners dead left and right. Fortunately the gates were high enough to let the god through without losing altitude appreciably. Inside the mob surged back, clearing a way across the courtyard. It was only necessary to paralyze a few here, and the levitated idol and its priestly attendants advanced toward the stone platform, where the king sat on his throne, flanked by court functionaries and black-robed priests of Mazazine. In front of this, a rank of Cheldon archers had been drawn up. "'Horv, move Yat-Zar forward about a hundred feet and up about fifty. Vall directed. "'Quickly.' As the six-armed anthropomorphic idol rose and moved closer toward its Sarian rival, Verkan Vall drew his needler, scanning the assemblage around the throne anxiously. "'Where is the wicked king?' a voice thundered, the voice of Stranor Sleth speaking into a midget radio-tuned to the loudspeaker inside the idol. "'Where is the blasphemer and desecrator Karchuk?' "'There's Labdurg in the red tunic, beside the throne,' Tamandrav whispered. "'And that's Gramdur, the muzzazine high-priest, beside him.' Verkan Vall nodded keeping his eyes on the group on the platform. Gromdur, the high priest of Muzazin, was edging backward and reaching under his robe. At the same time, an officer shouted an order, and the Chuldun archers drew arrows from their quivers and fitted them to their bowstrings. Immediately, the ultrasonic paralyzers of the advancing paratimers went into action, and the mercenaries began dropping. "'Lay down your weapons, fools!' the amplified voice boomed at them, "'Lay down your weapons, or you shall surely die! Who are you, miserable wretches, to draw bows against me!' At first a few, then all of them, the Cheldons lowered or dropped their weapons, and began edging away to the sides. At the center, in front of the throne, most of them had been knocked out. Verkan Vall was still watching the Muzazine high-priest intently. As Gromdur raised his arms, there was a flash and a puff of smoke from the front of Yatzar. The paint over the collapsed nickel was burned off, but otherwise the idol was undamaged. Verkan Vall swung up his needler and rayed Gromdur dead. As the man in the green-faced black robes fell, a blaster clattered on the stone platform. Is that your beauty, best Muzzazine? The booming voice demanded. Where is your high priest now? Horf, face Yat Tsar toward Mazzazeen, verkan vall said over his shoulder, drawing his blaster with his left hand. Like all first level people, he was ambidextrous, although, like all paratimers, he habitually concealed the fact while out time. As the levitated idol swung slowly to look down upon its enemy on the built up cart, verkan vall aimed his blaster and squeezed. In a spot less than a millimeter in diameter on the crocodile idol's side, a certain number of neutrons in the atomic structure of the stone from which it was carved broke apart, becoming, in effect, atoms of hydrogen. With a flash and a bang, the idol burst and vanished. Yat-Zar gave a dirty laugh and turned his back on the cart, which was now burning fiercely, facing King Kurchuk again. "'Get your hands up, all of you,' Verkan Vall shouted, in the first-level language, swinging the stubby muzzle of the blaster and the knob-tipped twin-tubes of the needler to cover the group around the throne. Come forward before I start blasting!' Labdurg raised his hands and stepped forward. So did two of the priests of At-Zar. They were quickly seized by paratime policemen who swarmed up onto the platform and disarmed. All three were carrying sigma-ray needlers, and Labdurg had a blaster as well. King Kurchuk was clinging to the arms of his throne, a badly frightened monarch, trying desperately not to show it. He was a big man, heavy-shouldered, black-bearded, under ordinary circumstances he would probably have cut an imposing figure, in his gold-washed mail and his golden crown. Now his face was a dirty grey, and he was biting nervously at his lower lip. The others on the platform were in even worse state. The Hulgan nobles were grouped together, trying to dissociate themselves from both the king and the priests of Mazin. The latter were staring in a daze at the blazing cart from which their idol had just been blasted, and the dozen men who were to have done the actual work of the torture sacrifice had all dropped their whips and were fairly gibbering in fear. Yet zar manipulated by the robed paratimer, had taken a position directly above the throne and was lowering slowly. Kurchuk stared up at the massive idol descending toward him, his knuckles white as he clung to the arms of his throne. He managed to hold out until he could feel the weight of the idol pressing on his head. Then, with a scream, he hurled himself from the throne and rolled forward almost to the edge of the platform. Yat-Zar moved to one side swung slightly, and knocked the throne toppling, and then settled down on the platform. To Kerchuk, who was rising cautiously on his hands and knees, the big idol seemed to be looking at him in contempt. "'Where are my holy priests, Kerchuk?' Stranor Steth demanded into a sleeve-hidden radio. "'Let them be brought before me, alive and unharmed, or it shall be better for you had you never been born." The six priests of Yat-Zar, it seemed, were already being brought onto the platform by one of Kerchuk's nobles. This noble, whose name was Yorzuk, knew a miracle when he saw one, and believed in being on the side of a god with the heaviest artillery. As soon as he had seen yat coming through the gate without visible means of support, He had hastened to the dungeons with a half a dozen of his personal retainers, and ordered the release of the six captives. He was now escorting them onto the platform, assuring them that he had always been a faithful servant of Yat-Zar and had been deeply grieved at his sovereign's apostasy. "'Hear my word, Kurchuk. Stranor Sleth continued through the loudspeaker in the idol. "'you have sinned most vilely against me.' and were I a cruel god, your fate would be such as no man has ever before suffered. But I am a merciful god. Behold, you may gain forgiveness in my sight. For thirty days you shall neither eat meat nor drink wine, nor shall you wear gold nor fine raiment, and each day shall you go to my temple and beseech me for my forgiveness. And on the thirty-first day, you shall set out, barefoot and clad in the garb of a slave, and journey to my temple that is in the mountains over above Yoldav, and there will I forgive you, after you have made sacrifice to me. I, Yatzar, have spoken. The king started to rise, babbling thanks. Rise not before me until I have forgiven you, Yatzar thundered. "'Creep out of my sight upon your belly, wretch!' The procession back to the temple was made quietly and sedately along an empty roadway. Yat-Zar seemed to be in a kindly humor. The people of Zurb had no intention of giving him any reason to change his mood. The priests of muz and their torturers had been flung into the dungeon. Yorzuk, appointed regent for the duration of Kerchuk's penance, had taken control, and was employing Hulgun spearmen, and hastily converted Chuldun archers to restore order, and, incidentally, purge a few of his personal enemies and political rivals. The priests, with the three prisoners who had been found carrying first-level weapons among them, and Yat-Zar, floating triumphantly in front, entered the temple. A few of the devout, who sought admission after them, were told that elaborate and secret rites were being held to cleanse the profaned altar and sent away. Verkan Vall and Brannad Clav and Stranor Sleth were in the conveyor chamber, with the Paratime policemen and the extra priests. Along with them were the three prisoners. Verkan Vall pulled off his false beard and turned to face these. He could see that they all recognized him. "'Now,' he began, you people are in a bad jam. you violated the Paratime Transposition Code, the Commercial Regulation Code, and the First Level Criminal Code, all together. If you know what's good for you, you'll start talking." "'I'm not saying anything till I have legal advice,' the man who had been using the local alias of Labdurg replied. "'And if you're through searching me, I'd like to have my cigarettes and lighter back.' "'Smoke one of mine for a change,' Vall told him. "'I don't know what's in yours besides tobacco.' He offered his case and held a light for the prisoner before lighting his own cigarette. "'I'm going to be sure you get back to first level alive.' The former overseer of the Kingdom of Zurb shrugged. "'I'm still not talking,' he said. "'Well, we can get it all out of you by narcohypnosis, anyhow,' Vall told him. Besides, we got that man of yours who was here at the temple when we came in. He's being given a full treatment, as a presumed out-time native found in possession of first-level weapons. If you talk now, it'll go easier with you." The prisoner dropped the cigarette on the floor and tramped it out. "'Anything you cops get out of me, you'll have to get the hard way,' he said. "'I have friends on the first level who'll take care of me.' "'I doubt that.' They'll have their hands full taking care of themselves after this gets out. Verkan Vall turned to the two in the black robes. Either of you want to say anything? When they shook their heads, he nodded to a group of his policemen. They were hustled into the conveyor. Take them to the first level terminal and hold them till I come in. I'll be along with the next conveyor load. The conveyor flashed and vanished. Brannad Clav stared for a moment at the circle of concrete floor from whence it had disappeared. Then he turned to Verkan Vall. "'I still can't believe it,' he said. "'Why, those fellows were first-level paratimers. So was that priest, Gromdur, the one you raid.' "'Yes, of course. They worked for your rivals, the fourth-level mineral products syndicate, the outfit that was trying to get your proto-Aryan sector fissionables franchise away from you.' They operate on this sector already, have the petroleum franchise for the Chuldun country, east of the Caspian Sea. They export to some of these internal combustion engine sectors, like Europo-American. You know, most of the wars they've been fighting lately on the Europo-American sector have been, at least in part, motivated by rivalry for oil fields. But now that the Europo-Americans have begun to release nuclear energy, Fissionables have become more important than oil. In less than a century, it's predicted that atomic energy will replace all other forms of power. Mineral Products Syndicate wanted to get a good source of supply for uranium, and your proto-Aryan sector franchise was worth grabbing. I had considered something like this as a possibility when Stranor here mentioned that tularemia was normally unknown in Eurasia on this sector. That epidemic must have been started by imported germs. And I knew that Mineral Products has agents at the court of the Chaldan Emperor, Chombrog. They have to, to protect their oil wells on his eastern frontiers. I spent most of last night checking up on some stuff by video transcription from Paratime Commission's microfilm library at Durgabar. I found out, for one thing, that while there is a King Kerchuk of Zerb on every timeline for a hundred para years on either side of this one, this is the only timeline in which he married a Princess Dareth of Chulden, and it's the only timeline on which there is any trace of a Chulden scribe named Labdurg. That's why I went to all the trouble of having that Yatzar plated with collapsed nickel. If there were disguised paratimers among the muzzazine party at Kerchuk's court, I expected one of them to try to blast our idol when we brought it into the palace. I was watching Gromdor and Labdurg in particular. As soon as Gromdor used his blaster, I needled him. After that, it was easy." "'Was that why you insisted on sending that automatic viewer on ahead?' "'Yes. There was a chance that they might have planted a bomb in the house of Yatzar here. I knew they'd either do that, or let the place entirely alone. I suppose they were so confident of getting away with this, that they didn't want to damage the conveyor, or the conveyor chamber. They expected to use them, themselves, after they took over your company's franchise." Well, what's going to be done about it by the commission, Brannon wanted to know? Plenty. The Syndicate will probably lose their paratime license. Any of its officials who had guilty knowledge of this will be dealt with according to law. You know, this was a pretty nasty business. You are telling me, Sleth exclaimed, did you get a look at those whips they were going to use on our people? Pointed iron barbs a quarter-inch long braided into them, all over the lash-ends. Yes, any punitive action you are thinking about taking on these priests of Muzazin, the natives, I mean, will be ignored on the first level. And that reminds me, you'd better work out a line of policy pretty soon." Well, as for the priests and the torturers, I think I'll tell Yorzuk to have them sold to the Bungans, to the east. They're always in the market for galley-slaves, Stranor Sleth said. He turned to Brannad Clav. And I want six gold crowns made up as soon as possible. Strictly Hulgun design, with Yat-Zar religious symbolism, very rich and ornate, all slightly different. When I give Kurchuk absolution, I'll crown him at the altar in the name of Yat-Zar. Then I'll invite in the other five Hulgan kings, lecture them on their religious duties, and make them confess their secret doubts, forgive them, and crown them, too. From then on, they can all style themselves as ruling by the will of Yat-Zar and, from then on, you'll have all of them eating out of your hand," Verkan Vall concluded. You know, this will probably go down in Hulgun history as the reformation of Gullum the Holy. I've always wondered whether the theory of the divine right of kings was invented by the kings to establish their authority over the people, or by the priests to establish their authority over the kings. It works about as well one way as the other." "'What I can't understand is this,' Brenad Klav said. "'It was entirely because of my respect for the Paratime Code that I kept Stranor Sleth from using fourth-level weapons, and other techniques to control these people, with a show of apparent miraculous powers. But this fourth-level mineral products syndicate was operating in violation of the Paratime Code by invading our franchise area.' Why didn't they fake up a supernatural reign of terror to intimidate these natives?" "'Ha! Exactly because they were operating illegally,' Vall replied. "'Suppose they had started using needlers and blasters and anti-gravity and nuclear energy around here. The natives would have thought it was the power of muzzazine, of course, but what would have you thought? You'd have known as soon as they tried it, that first level paratimers were working against you, and you'd have laid the facts before the Commission, and this timeline would have been flooded with paratime police. They had to conceal their operations not only from the natives, as you do, but also from us, so they didn't dare make public their use of first level techniques. Of course, when we came marching into the palace with that idol on anti gravity, they knew at once what was happening. I have an idea that they only tried to blast that idol to create a diversion which would permit them to escape. If they could get out of the palace, they'd have made their way in disguise to the nearest mineral products syndicate conveyor and transposed out of here. I realize that they could best delay us by blasting our idol, and that's why I had it plated with collapsed nickel. I think that where they made their mistake was in allowing Kerchuk to have those priests arrested and insisting on sacrificing them to Muzazeen. If it hadn't been for that, the Paratime Police wouldn't have been brought into this at all. Well, Stranner, you'll want to get back to your temple, and Brannet and I want to get back to the first level. I'm supposed to take my wife to a banquet in Durgabar tonight, and with the fastest strato-rocket, I'll just barely make it. End of Temple Trouble by H. Beam Piper Read by Mark Nelson. This recording is in the public domain.